Open your Bibles to John 12. John 12 is the chapter I've chosen from our last week's readings in our uh, Fellowship of the Spirit Sword reading plan. Uh, and I'm going to uh, read three different sections to give it uh, a kind of a survey to us of this chapter. And so we'll read some and then skip down, read a little bit more and skip down, read a little bit more like that. So in John 12, starting at verse 9, if you're there, <clears throat> it says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now look down to verse 27. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now look at the second half of verse 36. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. One of the striking things about this chapter is the stark contrast in it between evidence and unbelief. Here we see some of the most stunning and compelling evidence, and in the face of it, some of the most deliberate unbelief. In what we read in that chapter, we see a man named Lazarus walking around, talking, who very recently was dead and rotting. And many of the people are believing in Jesus because of him. And some of the people witnessing this don't think, wow, praise God. They think we need to kill this formerly dead man. Lazarus is up to this point, some of the most, probably the most compelling evidence of Christ's divinity. And instead of believing in him, in Christ through him, they, they want to suppress and destroy and dismiss and remove this evidence. But it doesn't end there. Then Jesus goes, goes about his prophetic ministry, continues to do that when he decides publicly to just pray out of the overflow of his heart and his heart burden. And suddenly, in answer to that prayer, God the Father speaks audibly, answers him audibly from heaven, his voice thundering down for all to hear. 
And still, many did not believe in him. But what is even more sad is that many did believe. But among those who did believe in him, they there were many who refused to admit it. And why? It says in verse 43, because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And what we see in this chapter is that it's not for lack of evidence that people reject Christ. That's not what it is. Christ's authority is clear as day. His power is and his compelling love and truth are all on full display and blatantly brushed aside or shamefully suppressed and ignored. Some people bent on living a life that they think fashionable and culturally acceptable will live in willful ignorance. Even today, the power and the beauty and the truth of Christ screams out to us from all over the place. We are not in the dark about his identity. We are not left to question. There are many ways to talk about this, but one of my favorites is to think about two lists, to simply gather two lists of five people and see if anybody is on both. The first list is the five people who have made the biggest impact on the world. There's no doubt Jesus is on that list. Christianity being the world's biggest religion, but also looking back through history and seeing how it has reshaped countless cultures and even altered the course of history. I'd say he's number one, but that's arguable, so we'll say he's at least on the top five list. Now, gather a second list. And this list is the five most prominent people who have ever claimed to be God. If you can even think of anyone's name, because most of them are wackadoodles who are forgotten within five years. Now compare, compare these two lists. The biggest claim you can make about yourself and the biggest impact you can have. And if anyone is on both of those lists, has made such an audacious claim about themselves and then backed it up with actually changing the world, that person ought to be paid careful attention to. And there is one person on both of those lists. And it's not a person we can just dismiss because we just feel like it. This is clear to all of us. It was just as it was, as it was clear to the people in this story who still rejected him. It's other cultural and personal factors that lead people to reject Christ. It's social pressures private preferences, it's pride, it's fear. And this is what we see in this story. And we still see it today in many places. But I'll point to just one as an example. We see it in the scientific community. One place it's, this is seen for so clearly is in the writings of the British astrophysicist Fred Hoyle, who was so candid about the social and cultural pressures that prevent people from seeing what's right in front of them. He was a longtime and dedicated atheist, but he was a brave soul who refused to twist the science to fit his worldview. Once when giving a lecture on the inner working of stars, 
He, he said, if this were purely a scientific question and not one that touched on the religious problem, I do not believe that any scientist who has examined the evidence would fail to draw the inference that the laws of nuclear physics have been deliberately designed with regard to the consequences they produce in stars. It seemed obvious to him. He even had the guts to say that those who didn't agree were bothered on religious terms. But it was clear, however little he liked it, And later he wrote one of my favorite quotes. He said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. He says the number one calculates from the facts seems so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. I love that. A super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Hoyle was honest concerning the things that he was disinclined to accept based on his worldview. And he called out those who weren't honest about it. Let me read you a little bit more from that same article. He says, if one proceeds directly and straightforwardly in this matter without being deflected by a fear of incurring the wrath of scientific opinion, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. See how he says, the fear of incurring the wrath of scientific opinion? He sees that there's a cultural push, even a a concerted dogmatic fervor against clear evidence that points toward anything close to the God of the Bible. And this is what Jesus said it would be like. Science is not the only sphere in which this happens. It's just one example. But a cultural push that would make one fear to say things that would put them in line with Christ falls into the biblical category of persecution. I've noticed many people want to shut down any talk of Christians being persecuted and a a reluctance even among Christians to call the kinds of things that modern Christians face persecution. But I believe that those people are again bowing to social pressure rather than the scripture. Because careful exegesis reveals that persecution is not just being flogged or arrested. In Hebrews, it talks about, when it talks about persecutions, it mentions those things, but it also mentions being mocked, made fun of. Many of the mentions of persecution in the Bible are like this, social rejection and ridicule. But Jesus himself, and Jesus himself called social rejection and ridicule forms of persecution. And these not only happen to Christians today, you have to be blind if you said it didn't, but they are increasingly happening. And Jesus talked about this a lot. And I have a personal conviction to not just say true things from the Bible, but to say true things in proportion with how much the Bible talks about them. So we must talk about this. We all will experience negative backlash, or at the very least, pressure pushing back against our Christian convictions. And if we don't admit this truth then we simply won't be able to claim the encouragement and promises that are there for us to claim in the midst of it. Now, I must say, I do think that many of the well-meaning Christians who want to shut, shut down such talk are worried about some of the same things I'm worried about. So let's address those concerns. Those, what, I think that we're, I'm worried about that one that will join the parade of comparative suffering and oppression that's growing longer and longer. Comparing our suffering with the suffering of another person who's suffering and persecuted the most. And second, that we will 
fall into self-pity and indulge in self-pity. And these are bad things. We must, we must not compete for the position of who's the most oppressed. And we must not pout in self-pity. Jesus told us this for almost the exact opposite reasons. He wanted us to know what was coming. He wanted us to be prepared so that we wouldn't be taken off guard. He, he wanted us to stand firm and not be shaken. He wanted us to be ready to forgive and pray for our enemies. He wanted us to give them no legitimate reason to hate us and to overcome evil with good and return blessing for cursing. To look to him who went through the same things and much more and much worse and to live with him in peace and contentment and righteousness. But for all of this, we can't bury our head in the sand. If you were an alien from far off in the, I don't know, another planet, and you were plopped down on earth to study humanity, early on, you would notice the phenomenon of religion. And you'd want to know more about that. And so you'd probably start with the most prevalent and widely dispersed one. So you'd start studying Christianity. But you'd quickly get overwhelmed by trying to learn about it from them because they write a lot of books. And so you'd decide to procrastinate on that project, and you'd start with what other people say about them. And you'd find that Christianity is a very strange and confusing thing indeed. I mean, as you sat down to study, you'd learn that a philosopher of one century says it's a weak religion that only appeals to women, and an activist of the next century saying that it's an overly violent religion that oppresses women. Hmm. And then you'd find some objecting to it as too inclusive to the point that even the vilest of men can be a Christian. And then sometimes those very same people will turn around and criticize it for being too narrow and exclusive. And then you'd hear people criticize Christianity for its pessimism and constraint that prevents people from seeking happiness and freedom. And then you'd hear a whole other group of people describing it as some kind of pleasure-producing drug, an opiate of the masses that distracts people from harsh reality. How could it do both? And then you'd see how in places where it's less prominent, it's usually intentionally suppressed, like they're afraid it will spread like a cancer. And in places where it's more prominent, it's openly mocked and dismissed by the same people who say you must never ridicule anyone's beliefs or choices. And you, being the objective alien observer, might almost find yourself a convert as you're drawn into what could possibly drive the rest of the world to talk in circles like this. What could make these non-Christians so crazy with criticism that they contradict themselves and clamor over one another to tear it down in such different ways? And you, being the highly intelligent alien anthropologist, would no doubt come to the hypothesis that Christianity is either monstrously dangerous and a dark shadow spreading over as like a storm cloud over this world as they're fighting for light. Or it would, must be a burst of light in a mad world that loves the dark. And with this realization, you would no doubt quit procrastinating on your studies and dig in excitedly to the Christian scriptures and writings, and you would find the founder saying exactly that that this world loves the dark and hates the light and that his people should expect to be ridiculed and opposed and that he himself was treated this way. And that's the beautiful hope, friends. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. Jesus told us it would be this way, but he didn't tell us it so that we'd be afraid. He told us so that we would be brave. He He didn't tell us so that we would be angry. He told us so that we would be ready with grace. And perhaps most surprisingly, he didn't tell us so that we would be glum and gloomy. He told us so that we could have joy. He said that in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. But in order to receive this kind of joy, we must ready ourselves with faith. And we must practice being faithful in the little low stakes times of pressure and conflict. Otherwise, we will utterly fail when the stakes rise. Because I'm telling you, with the confidence of the authority of Scripture at my back, if you are unfaithful in a little, you will be unfaithful with much. If you're unfaithful when the stakes are low, you will be unfaithful when the stakes are high. So the question is, what are you training for? And if we look at the cautionary tale of the Pharisees in this story, they had trained themselves to be slaves shackled by the approval of those people that they admired. And it led to terribly sad results. So if we want to be ready for what lies ahead, we must ask ourselves this question. If you, are you living in such a way that you are motivated by the approval of others? Even in good things. That's what they were doing. Are you always wanting to be recognized for them by other people? Do you find yourself wanting to align your thoughts with a certain group of people? You may think because your opinions are unpopular among some that you're safe, but you aren't necessarily. Are you hoping for the approval of those who share your opinions? It's not wrong to have the approval of man, but it is dangerous to seek the approval of man as a primary motivating factor in your life because it is often a trade. We all live for the approval of someone. We can't get away from that. And as Jesus says, it is impossible to serve two masters. This is why Paul says not to work as man pleasers, but to work for God. And you may say, I'm doing good things. I'm saying good things. So it's okay if I revel in the approval it gets me. But that's dangerous because what if those two things diverge one day? To where the good thing is no longer the thing that's approved by man any longer. Which is something Christians are promised will happen to them. Then you're faced with a choice and you will choose the wrong path because motivation always wins out in the will. What's been motivating you? And this is exactly what we see in this story where the Pharisees had been so trained to live for the glory that comes from man that when they saw the right path ahead of them and it wasn't the path that was approved by the people they had always sought approval from, they could not walk the right path. And we see throughout the Gospels how they got to this point. They had trained themselves to do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And we see how blind it made them to their pathetic pursuit of vain glory. It doesn't take the supernatural insight of Jesus to see how desperate these men were for attention. 
He says that they would sound a trumpet before they gave to the needy. There's no subtlety there, right? He, they made themselves look like fools, which is always the result when you go down this road, by the way. Jesus said that they would stand on street corners and pray loudly so that they could be seen for their so-called piety. It's embarrassing, really. And I'm sure Jesus wasn't the only one who thought so. But they had the approval of their inner circle. And the pride and the respect that comes with being better at something than someone else. And it shows that we can twist anything in this pursuit. Even good things. Virtue signaling is what they were doing. Virtue signaling isn't just for radical progressives. You can put a pride flag up for the approval of one group. And you can practice your piety in loud and showy ways for the approval of another group. And to both people, Jesus says, you have received your reward. Enjoy it while it lasts. I hope it was worth it. Now, you've heard of devil's advocate. Well, let's play another game, devil's strategist, okay? Let's uh, get in the head of our enemy. And if you were the devil's strategist, let's, and, and for the sake of gaining some objectivity, let's create a hypothetical sin. And I'll describe this hypothetical sin. In this scenario, fishing is a sin. But fishing is a little different in this hypothetical world. And it's, it's a particularly nasty sin because humans all love it so much. All of them. And it's one that can distort even a person's devotion to God. And it has the added benefit of always making humans look foolish. So we can laugh at them while they're doing it. So, of course, as the devil's strategist, which we are right now, uh, fishing is going to be key to our strategy, isn't it? We, I mean, right? I mean, we can ruin the, the humans' religion and ruin the humans and have fun laughing at them while we're at it. Okay, so what's next? All right, now we've got to figure out how to get more people fishing. So, of course, we want to make water with fish in it widely available to all of them and go big or go home. Here's our plan. We're going to make a personal lake available for everybody. And to make sure they always have fish, we'll connect them all with underground tunnels. Okay, so we present this plan and the devil's very pleased with us, his strategists at this point, but he has a concern. He says, now they all know they're not supposed to fish, so they'll never allow all these lakes. And then we say, ha ha, we got this. We're going to furnish them with plenty of arguments about how valuable lakes are for other things than fishing, right? You don't have to fish. Lakes are awesome. And you can do a million things that are really good with them. And then of course, millions of them though, will cave to the temptation and start fishing around the same time. And then it'll make it normal, seem normal to fish. And then everybody will do it at the same time. And we win. Now, in case you're having trouble following my metaphor, sometimes I can lose people with a long metaphor. So let me spell it out. We do love to fish for the glory that comes from man. And it has become extremely normal in our day and age to do this, even though it makes us look like fools. Since everyone's doing it, it seems okay. And to the point where we all have our own personal lake in our pocket. In which lakes, sure, they're good for lots of other things. But we love to fish. And there ought to be more alarm bells being sounded than, there are, than they are. 
We are allowing ourselves to be conditioned to the glory that comes from man. And living for the glory of man has a way of ruining things. It ruins your religion. It can ruin even your relationships. It can ruin just your enjoyment of things, right? Like the author Tony Ranke told a story about his son wanting to jump off of a cliff into some water, as boys would like to do, you know? And Tony said, sure, we can do it as long as we don't film it. And his son huffed, said, well, then what's the point? He'd been so trained to think that's the point of doing anything not just for the actual enjoyment of the thing. We become cardboard cutouts of people rather than real people. But it's not just the internet and social media that's the problem. People fish in big seas and they fish in tiny little ponds. The internet is not the only way it happens. It just possesses the greatest access to vain glory. But such a thing existed far before the internet. And those old avenues still get plenty of traffic, trust me. C.S. Lewis once addressed college students and talked to them about the danger of the desire to be what, a part of what he called the inner ring. The inner ring is different for everybody. It's that invisible social barrier that you hope to cross or to stay inside of. And in the address, he tries to convince you that the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. And it will be a defining motive in your life unless you take conscious, continuous effort. Otherwise, you'll just drift with the stream and be an inner ringer. Not necessarily successful at it, he says. He says, you might be always pining and moping outside of rings you can never enter, or you may go further and further in. But one way or the other, you'll be that kind of person. And there's two main warnings Lewis gives to not be that kind of person. The first is that the desire for the inner ring is one of the most skillful passions at, tr at transitioning a person who's not yet that bad to doing very bad things, right? Because if that temptation comes from someone in that ring, you would not be able to imagine that person thinking of you as naive or boring or prudish or like those other people who don't understand, and that's the second warning then is, is that it really can't provide what you're seeking. He says it's like trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. You, you will, unless you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider will remain. He says that the, the quest for the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. So how do we break it? I believe the most definitive way to break it is to be enthralled with a greater glory than the glory that comes from man. To see that we are fully accepted into the only inner ring that matters. Amen. And to remember that. To practice gratitude that leads to humility and, and to, like Lewis said, daily resist the current of this world that's pulling us back to lesser glory. It happens all too easily if we let it. There's a powerful picture of this in the Disney movie called Encanto. I am in that stage of life where I'm watching a lot of kid movies, so please forgive me. Um, but that suits me fine because, you know, I think they sell some of the best stories. Grown-up movies are obsessed with things like romance and violence and boring stuff like that. But kid stories tell really interesting stories. And sometimes they do it better than they even intend to, I think which is the case with Encanto. It's a great film, and it's about a family and a community that is blessed by a miracle in the aftermath of persecution. 
Amidst, and amidst a small group of fleeing refugees, a woman with triplet babies loses her husband after he valiantly stood up to their pursuers. And God honors his faith with a miraculous provision marked by a candle that never stops burning and a, home, a living home that built itself. Okay, they never mention God explicitly, but they say miracle a lot. And I think everybody knows that a miracle is from God, right? I mean, it's kind of its definition. When, God, when, when magic is done by people, it's magic. When it's done by God, it's a miracle. So that God gives them a, this additional gift later, which is, I mean, as he have, I mean, he's generous, right? That's what we know him to be. He gives them another gift later, which is that each of the triplets has a supernatural ability, like the ability to see the future or heal people by making them a meal. And when those kids have kids and marry and have kids, each of their kids receives a gift like that as well. And the woman, the original woman who's now a grandmother, she leads her family to use their gifts for good, to establish and aid this community of refugees. And it becomes a thriving community full of love and gratitude for this miraculous gift from God. And, and then something surprising happens. One of her grandchildren doesn't receive a miraculous gift. She's merely a normal young woman. And this is Mirabelle. And Mirabelle becomes a bit of a black sheep, especially in the eyes of her grandmother, who is anxious about what this means for her family and her legacy and the magic and the town. And then Mirabelle begins to see things like cracks in the walls of their magical house and, ma and the magic candle flickering and almost failing. And the grandmother refuses to believe her and assumes that she's making it up out of jealousy. And she tries to quiet Mirabel, lest panic spread through the town and anyone doubt the magic and the strength of it and their family. But as Mirabel investigates, she learns that others in the family are feeling incredible pressure to live up to the grandma's expectations. And they are burdened, but they're trying to hide it. But as Mirabel op opens up these emotional doors that the grandmother would rather keep shut, the grandma unloads on her in anger, resulting in the collapse of the house and the extinguishing of the candle and the removal of everyone's supernatural abilities. God removed the blessing because she had lost sight of what the gifts were for. She had come to see the family as existing for the miracle rather than the miracle existing for the family. And she had been consumed with how the town saw them and their reputation. And it made her live in denial, unable to accept that anything was wrong. It made her shun a beloved granddaughter who didn't live up to her expectations. It made her put undue pressure on all of her grandchildren, all because she sifted the focus from the glory that comes from God to the glory that comes from man. And she was so worried about what people would think and how that reflected on her. And sure, it was mixed with good motives too. It often is to be good stewards of the gift. But she had shifted from being humbled by the gifts to being inflated by them and entitled to them. And thinking less about what God thought of her and more about what the town thought of her. And it led to the degradation of her family and the devastation of her home. But even that devastation was God's gracious gift because it broke her down to build her back up, to humble her once again so that she could receive grace and love and see what the gifts were really for in the first place. 
It's a beautiful story. And you'll cry at the end if you're sappy like me. But the warning is powerful. God's gifts are never to be used to bolster our reputation. They are to be used to foster love and gratitude and grace and humility. And this can only come through living for the glory that comes from God rather than the glory that comes from man. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The glory that comes from God, what does that mean? And it's an, it's an important question because in this text, we're told that, I mean, it seems like that's the thing that we should be desiring and seeking after. The glory that comes from God. Well, glory's talked about a few different ways, but the fact that it's contrasted here with the glory that comes from man, it's a hint to what he's talking about. The glory that comes from man is a feeble, counterfeit glory, an imitation glory to the glory we were actually made for. And, and what is the glory that comes from man? We all know that, don't we? I mean, in, in some cases, it's fame. But for most, it's not. It's approval, recognition, accolades, usually comparatively too. We just, we don't need a lot. We just need more than that guy. So we see the, con- the contours of this counterfeit glory. We see what it's trying to be like. Approval, recognition, accolades. But the thing it's copying is the approval, recognition, accolades from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be seen by him and approved by him. Really deeply appreciated by the maker and master of all. Jesus told a famous parable in what some have called, uh, has in it what some have called the divine accolade in which we hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the glory that we are to love more than the glory that comes from man. There is a rare, pure, and prideless joy in pleasing the one we were made to please. And God has put this this principle into the world as well, even though it can quickly become spoiled and twisted into that counterfeit glory, we do get glimpses of it at times, like when a child rejoices in pleasing her father, or a worker in pleasing a respected employer, or a student before a teacher, and so on. Some joy in pleasing man is appropriate, but our sin often twists it unless it's rooted in the good soil of the glory that comes from God creature pleasing its creator. This is the incredible and beautiful hope that we are promised in Christ. That our redeemed souls, rescued and empowered by his grace, can please him who we were made to please. This glory doesn't inflate our egos as the counterfeit glory does. It humbles us because we, we, know, we know that we couldn't do this on our own. It frees us from thinking that way. It, it was grace, as, as the hymn says, that taught our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieved. He has brought us here so that we can cast aside the shackles of pride. And, and while at the same time, it, this, this glory, it kills our old inferiority complex that's always whispering that we're not going to measure up. Because he declares that we measure up in Christ. So who are we to disagree? And when we really hear him we, and we really receive his gracious approval, we won't disagree. We know that we are beloved 
and that he takes pleasure in us. In the book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's on to something. But, I, I mean, I hesitate to argue with Tozer, but I would say that that's actually the second most important thing about us. The first most important thing about us is not what comes into our mind when we think about God, but what comes into God's mind when he thinks about us. And even thinking that thought makes us feel like we're on the verge of something heavy, doesn't it? It's no surprise that the word for glory in Hebrew means heavy, weighty. We must appear before God and he must think something of us. But really, we must live our whole lives before the face of God. And he must be thinking something of us. Is he pleased? Is he displeased? And God doesn't do half measures. If he's pleased, his pleasure is to confer glory unimaginable. The promise of the glory that comes from God is that when we stand before him and when we live our lives before his face, we will not only survive that examination, but we will receive his wholehearted approval and joy loved by him. Not pitied or reluctantly patted on the head, but actually delighted in and rejoiced over, deeply, passionately loved. How is this possible? It's possible because there is one, unlike you, who has earned such approval and glory, who is the spring of glory, who chose to identify with us, so, and he did so deeply and perfectly, who faced every temptation this world and the evil one had to offer with unfailing dignity, and grace, who is beloved by the Father from eternity to eternity, who chose death in the place of us who have brought it on ourselves, who, un who unites himself with us through our faith, abiding in us as we abide in him in an unbreakable bond, sharing with us his perfect standing before his Father as we trust in him alone. And then we are loved with the same love that he is loved. And that's a thought that I hope seems nearly too wonderful to believe because then you might be almost understanding it. And then I get the privilege to say to you, believe it. This is both the invitation and the command of Christ to you today. Believe in him and become a part of the joy of God that will echo through eternity. Believe and rejoice in the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Holy Father, give us humility and gratitude as we receive your blessing and love, which you freely give in Christ. Glorify your name among us and make us trust in you as our help and our shield. May we love the glory from you and forsake the glory from man. Free us and bless us through our Savior Jesus. We pray with him now. Amen.